It is uh, a privilege to be part of what God is doing here. <clears throat> it's uh, taken us a while to get settled, but we are finally feeling at home. I'm glad my wife believes in tithing. I have a tenth of the wardrobe, and uh, so I have a few places to home, uh, hang my clothes. But uh, we look forward to meeting you, getting to know you a little bit. Uh, we're family. Please don't put us on any sort of a pedestal, because the more you get to know us, you'll realize that pedestal will get lower and lower. So um, we have nothing to boast in other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I, too, was lifted out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay. It was a religious pit. It wasn't maybe, you know, that filthy in some ways, but in other ways it was filthier than all, because it's the Pharisee that is the one that irks God more than anybody else. Isn't that right? And I was, a, uh, I was a good Pharisee. All right, let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we bring your word to you this morning. Lord, this word that gives us everything that pertains to life and godliness is in this book. And yet, Lord, we recognize that the letter kills, and only the Spirit can bring it to life. And so, Holy Spirit, bring this word to life today. Do in us what you want to do, we pray. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to uh, speak to you about what I believe to be the greatest obstacle to revival. The greatest obstacle to revival. Let me clarify that and say the greatest obstacle to personal revival. There is a mystery about revival. It's like healing. One person gets healed, the other doesn't. They both seem to have faith. They've both been praying. You know, nobody has ever solved that sort of problem. And revival is sort of like that. It breaks out in one place, and yet there's other places that have been praying for years and have not seen it. But when it comes to personal revival, we can all have it. Isn't that right? And uh, the greatest obstacle to personal revival is what I want to talk about. Before I do that, I want to read two statements by two great men of God. Both of them have gone to be with the Lord now, but these are men that were giants, if you like, in the body of Christ. The first one is Oswald Chambers. How many know who Oswald Chambers was? Great. If you have that uh, devotional book, possibly the best-selling personal devotional or daily devotional book in the world, My Utmost for His Highest, that was uh, Oswald Chambers. This is what he says, and I'm prepared now for the stones to begin flying from the uh, theologians, but bear with me. He says, the forgiveness of a child of God, well, let me put in place of the child of God a believer, because you can think, well, everybody's a child of God in one sense. The forgiveness of a, of a believer is not based on the grounds of the atonement of our Lord. Okay, start throwing the rocks. <laughs> Let me say that again. The forgiveness of a believer is not based on the grounds of the atonement of the Lord, but on the ground that the believer shows the same forgiveness to his fellows that God the Father has shown him. I hope you get that. That is a major theological statement, that our forgiveness is no longer based on the grounds of the atonement, but it's based on whether or not we are prepared to forgive a brother or sister. The second statement is from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great British writers. He says, I say to every man, who is imagining fondly that his sins are forgiven by Christ, though he does not forgive anyone else. Beware, my friend, lest you wake up in eternity and find him saying to you, Depart from me, I never knew you. Let me read it one more time. I say to any man who is imagining fondly that his sins are forgiven by Christ, though he does not forgive anyone else, Beware, my friend, lest you wake up in eternity and find him saying to you, Depart from me, I never knew you. The greatest obstacle to personal revival is unforgiveness. 
unforgiveness of a brother or sister, mother or father, workmate, whatever, that is the greatest obstacle. Many years ago in uh, Borneo, if you know where Borneo is, that is in East Malaysia, I was told this by a wonderful man of God in New Zealand who knew a missionary that worked in a remote valley in that uh, nation of Borneo translating the Scriptures. In that valley, there were two villages. These villages had grown over the years to have great animosity for each other. They'd burned down their villages occasionally, raped their women, stolen, pillaged, done all sorts of atrocities, and there was uh, uh, just unbelievable tension between these two villages. The missionary came in to translate the Scriptures. He hired one of the young men from one of these villages. They were working through the translation of the book of Mark, and they came to Mark chapter 11, verse 25, where it says, when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against anyone. Immediately, the young man that was uh, from one of these villages that the missionary had uh, hired said to him, why don't we do that? It sort of caught the missionary off guard because he was concentrating on making sure he had the right word to convey the, uh, the, the Scripture, and he didn't realize that this young man had come under conviction. Once again, the young man said to the missionary, why don't we do that? The missionary realized that something was happening, and he said to the young man, he said, we have to do what the Word of God says if we are believers. As a result of that, this young man went to the neighboring village and apologized, asked for forgiveness on behalf of his family, on behalf of himself. As a result of that, a revival took place in that valley that, uh, again, hundreds of people were converted, all as a result of one man asking forgiveness of another. God is a God of forgiveness. Whether you read the Old Testament or the New Testament, and I understand these days the Old Testament is out of vogue. I hope that's not true in this church. If it is, I'll be leaving tomorrow. (laughs) There are those that are teaching, this is true, there are those that are teaching from Genesis to the end of John is no longer relevant to the believer. That is a teaching that is widespread in the body of Christ under the hyper-grace message. I believe a lot of Christians think that those 400 years of silence between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, God was undergoing management or anger management training. You know, we've got this view of God in the Old Testament that He's always a, a little uptight, ready to you know, give you a backhand at the slightest thing you do wrong, and so on. Moses prayed, show me your glory, God. And as a result of that, God revealed to him his compassion, his mercy, and so on. But then he added, I am a God who forgives transgression, iniquity, and sin. God is a God of forgiveness. And every single one of us here, if you call yourself a man, a woman of God, a believer, we have had that forgiveness, the grace of God. We haven't had to merit it. We haven't had to earn it. It is available to each and every one of us. And yet, even as we receive that vertical forgiveness, we have to believe in horizontal forgiveness. Those two go hand in hand. You cannot receive forgiveness from God and withhold that forgiveness from a brother or sister or even an unsaved person. And if we do, we're in serious trouble even under the Old Covenant. There's an interesting little uh, passage here that I've often sort of reflected on in Exodus. uh, I'm missing it already. Exodus 23. One of the laws that God gave to the children of Israel in verse 4, it says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Now, that may not make too much sense to most of you because you don't have a donkey or you don't have an ox, but this is your enemy. This is a man that hates your guts. This is a man that has spread all sorts of rumors, malicious things he's done to you and your family. He's ruined your reputation. He is the man that you despise above everything else. And you are walking along the road one day, and you recognize that there is your enemy's ox. You are five miles from home, 
and he lives directly across the street from you. And here is your enemy's ox. Let me explain your enemy's ox. It is a combination of a Lexus, an F-150, and a John Deere. That's what an ox is. It was the most important thing that a man had in that day. It was the way he got to work or whatever. It pulled the cart that he took his produce to the marketplace with. It plowed his field. Again, it was his pickup truck, his tractor, and his transport. And this is your enemy's oxen. And the natural tendency is to stand back there and sort of gloat. Because you think when this guy wakes up in the morning, he's not going to be able to get to work. He's not going to be able to plow his field. He's not going to be able to get his produce to market because his ox, if it keeps going at the rate it's going, is going to be 15 miles down the road. He will never find it. And it serves him right. I did not release it. I did not open the gate. I have nothing to do with that situation. And the Bible says you are to get that ox and you are to take it back and give it back to the one that hates you. That is an act of forgiveness. We go into the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 25, verse 22. It says, if your enemy is hungry, let him die. Oh, no, that's the amplified, sorry. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. This again is your enemy. I don't want to sustain the life of my enemy. I want to get rid of my enemy. And yet he's got a need. And I have the ability to meet that need. And the Bible says, in so doing, you will heap burning coals of fire on his head. Possibly one of the most misunderstood portions of Scripture. In other words, most people say you do something good to the person that's done evil to you to sort of really make him mad, you know. I'm going to heap burning coals on him. I'm going to do something. I'm going to be sweet to him, even though he's mad at me, because that's going to irate him all the more. No. The burning coals, they would look after their flocks at night, their herds at night, and in order to keep themselves warm because of the extreme temperature, they would light a fire. That fire was not only to protect them, but it was to keep them from uh, the predators that were prowling around, the lion and the bear. Remember that David had to kill. They're no longer there in Israel, but they were in this, this day. And if your fire went out, you could perish. If your fire went out, you could be attacked by some sort of predator. And so if your fire went out, you would look there maybe a quarter of a mile away, and there was another herdsman. His fire was blazing away, and you would go, and you would ask him for coals of fire. And he would give you enough coals of fire. You would put them on your pot and put that pot on your head, and you would walk back to your camp, and you would rekindle that fire that had gone out. In other words, again, you were preserving the life of that individual. That's your enemy. That's the God that we serve is a God of forgiveness. And he wants us too to partake in that same nature that he has. We go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6. We have, of course, the Lord's Prayer, that prayer that uh, we could all recite. Our Father, which art in heaven... And we go on again, give us this day our daily bread, and so on and so forth. But out of that entire prayer, the one thing that Jesus went back and underscored was this matter of forgiveness. Because in that prayer, we are praying, Father, forgive us according to how we forgive others. Forgive us our sins according to how we forgive our debtors or those that have sinned against us. I remember David Duplessis, I don't know if that name rings a bell to any of you. He was a major player in the body of Christ many, many years ago. He was referred to as Dr. Pentecost and Mr. Pentecost, went around the world reconciling various groups and so on. 
But I remember him saying, this is the one prayer that Jesus will answer one day. He will forgive you according to how you've forgiven others because you asked him to. Father, forgive us according to the way in which we forgive others. And in that prayer, Jesus went back and notice he said, if you do not forgive, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. That's why those two statements I read are predicated upon that verse of Scripture. That our forgiveness is no longer based now on the grounds of the atonement. Our forgiveness is based on whether or not we are prepared to forgive our brother or sister or whoever it is, a neighbor, workman, boss, relative. Luke chapter 6 and verse 37. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Pardon and you will be pardoned, or release and you will be released. The word there is to untie an animal. It's like a horse in the old western. They go up to the hitching post and, you know, wrap the, uh, what do you call it, the reins around that uh, thing, and that animal can't get away. But when you release it, then the animal is free to go. We are to release people. We're no longer to hold them in bondage, no longer tie them up, so to speak. The last church that uh, Nancy and I pastored was up in a very beautiful place called Gig Harbor, Washington, across the sound there from uh, Tacoma. We had a, uh, I was the uh, pastor for a while of a vineyard church uh, for five years. That church had gone through a major upheaval. The senior pastor had uh, got involved with uh, immorality, and we were asked to go and uh, bring that church back to health, which by the grace of God we were able to do. But as the church began to grow, so did the problems, and by the problems I mean people would come in, and especially marriage problems, and I'm not a marriage counselor. There are two things don't ever ask me to lecture on. One is marriage, the other is uh, uh, end-time events because I still haven't figured out either one yet. But uh, I had a number of uh, my uh, sheep, if you like, come to me about a particular counselor that they'd been going to, and I heard every single week about this incredible counselor and how good he was and so on and so forth. Finally, one day, I picked up the phone and I called him. He happened to be a Jewish man. And I introduced myself as the pastor of the church, and uh, I said, listen, would it be possible for you to come and do a seminar? I said, I've got numerous people that are coming to you for counsel, paying about $100 an hour, and we had a lot of people that couldn't even afford, you know, $10 an hour type thing, or uh, $15 an hour. And so I, uh, I said to him, would you consider coming and doing a lecture? And he said, well, you know, that's not what I really do. He said, I'm more of a hands-on person, one-on-one and so on. I said, but there must be some sort of commonality that you find in, you know, many of the marriage problems, something that is sort of a, you know, a common thread that you could come. And then, of course, to sweeten the deal, I said, listen, we'll give you $500 or something like that if you come and do a Saturday morning, and we'll charge the, uh, the people $10 a, a couple. And uh, so we worked out a deal, and he came and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I'm going to get all sorts of revelation. Here is a man that charges $100 an hour. Here is a man that uh, everybody's been raving about, and I couldn't, you know, wait to hear, you know, you know this, the, the secret that this man had, you know. And it basically boiled down to one thing, forgiveness. And he told this illustration. He said, you know, I, he said, I had a particular model car that I really, really enjoyed. It was just, you know, this is a guy thing, ladies. And uh, he said, you know, I had to sell it. I can't remember the reason why now, but he said, after selling it, I had, you know, seller's remorse, and I wish I'd have had that car back. It was like an old friend. I remember the illustration. He said, it was like putting on an old coat. You just felt comfortable wearing it. And he said, there was something about that car, you know, that uh, I just enjoyed. And he said, about uh, two or three months went by, and one day I was over at the mall, and he said, there was my car. And he said, uh, I recognized it. Uh, there was no mistake about it. He said, the color, the model, it was a rare uh, model. And he said, I just wanted to go up to it and sit in it for one last time. He said, it was like meeting an old friend. 
And he said, as I approached it, he said, I realized something. I no longer own the car. I signed it over to somebody else. I no longer have a right to it. I can't get in it. I don't have permission to go back to it. It no longer belongs to me. He said, that is what forgiveness is all about. It is releasing that thing. But he says, in marriage, what we do, we have our particular weapons that we put back in the filing cabinet after using them. Well, remember when you cheated on me, or remember when you did this, or remember when you did that. And we use it over and over and over again. He said, we never really forgive. And I like to think of it as one of those helium balloons, you know, for a wedding anniversary or a birthday or whatever, and you buy it at Hallmark and you hold it, and as long as you're holding it, you've got control of it. But the moment you let go, that thing's gone, and there's no retrieving it. That is what forgiveness is all about. It's letting go of that thing, never to retrieve it again. You see, unforgiveness ties the hands of God. Even though He is a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of love and so on, God is incapable of forgiving you until you forgive somebody else. Colossians 3 and verse 13, it says, Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Just as, in other words, He has set the standard, He has set an example. Just as God forgave you, you have to forgive one another. Nancy and I worked with a wonderful man of God back in the early 60s in New Zealand. We lived on an island off the coast of New Zealand called the Great Barrier Island, not to be confused with the Great Barrier Reef that's in Australia. But this was a, an island about 30 miles long, about 7 miles wide, and there was like a teen challenge. It wasn't really a teen challenge, but it was a rehab program for alcoholics and so on. We were about 60 miles from the mainland, and that's a long way to swim if you, uh, you know, that desperate to get your drink. But uh, so it worked pretty good. We were not there, obviously, for rehabilitation purposes. We were there to introduce youth with a mission to uh, New Zealand. But the gentleman that ran that program was a godly man by the name of Neville Winger. And uh, he had an expression. He says, we're all damaged goods. We're all damaged goods. Somebody's dropped us. Somebody's disappointed us. Somebody's rejected us. Somebody's abused us physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, whatever other way. You know, we've all got our story. I guarantee you we could begin here and work our way across the auditorium. And every single person here has got one or more and possibly, you know, half a dozen or more of uh, situations where you've been betrayed, where somebody's rejected you, where somebody's uh, spread rumors about you, ripped you off, uh, you know, in a business situation, whatever it is. All of those things, you've been rejected, you've been lied to. You know, we've all got those stories. But how we respond to those situations is how God responds to us. Isn't that right? The psalmist, I've never heard anybody preach on this, but Psalm 18 is also mentioned there in, the, in Samuel. It says, with the kind, you show yourself kind. This is God now. With the blameless, you show yourself to be blameless. With the pure, you show yourself to be pure. But with the crooked, you show yourself to be twisted, it says literally, or crooked. In other words, God responds in kind many times. We don't hear that about God so much. We've got God so nailed down to the fact that, you know, He's a God of love that, yeah, but love disciplines. Isn't that right? Otherwise, you're a bastard and not a son or a daughter. And so, you know, we, we've got this sort of mushy Hollywood concept of God, but God sometimes again, responds in kind. And now you say, well, again, that's the Old Testament, but uh, let me give you possibly the most frightening verse in the Bible, at least I think it is, James 2 and verse 13. And it says, judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. Judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. In other words, when you and I stand single-handedly before God one day at that judgment seat, if we have not shown mercy to a brother or a sister, somebody who has wronged us and so on, God Himself is restrained in showing mercy towards you and I. That is a frightening verse. It's a verse that every single believer should have embedded 
in the very fabric of their being, if you like. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that root of bitterness that can spring up and defile. It is a root that if you allow that thing to grow, becomes, if you like, a tree. My father and I built houses many, many years ago on a 10-acre plot of ground there in the East Texas, and I planted some little pine trees. They were literally this big. Over the years, well, it was a couple of months later that I decided that rather than have them where I'd planted them, I wanted to uh, transplant them, and so by this time they were about this big, but it was no problem. One shovel and they were up and I was able to transplant them. I was back uh, visiting there some years ago, and those trees are now about this far across, 30 or 40 feet high. It is impossible to uproot them. And the Bible says bitterness is like that. It will take root to the point where it is almost impossible for you to get rid of that thing. I have in my Bible here, and I've had it for many, many years now, the story of a couple that were dating each other. The man's name is Ron. The lady's name was Amy. They'd been going together for some time, and uh, she went on vacation with her parents. Can't remember now exactly the details, but while she was away, her boyfriend's father died. He was devastated as a result of it. It uh, caught him by surprise, and he contacted his girlfriend, Amy, and he asked her if she would cut her vacation short and come back. He needed her right now. He was an emotional sort of basket case, I guess, and uh, she felt, you know, that the relationship, I guess, was not that uh, far along, and so uh, uh, this was a well-earned vacation. She remained behind, and she did not go. When she did return home, they resumed their relationship, and a little while later, he proposed, and uh, they were married. It wasn't too long after that that uh, she conceived and uh, gave birth to a little baby boy by the name of Tyler. Tyler was nine years, sorry, was uh, nine months old when just a, a month or two before that, she had uh, resumed working at nighttime. She was a checkout clerk at a supermarket, and uh, Ron would look after the, the baby while she was uh, working. And many times when she came home, he already had the baby in bed, and the baby was asleep, and so she would not bother with the baby because there was no whimpering coming from the baby's room, and she was tired. She would uh, collapse in the bed. It was the night before her Father's Day. She came home late again, as was her routine, got ready, went to bed, woke up in the morning, uh, the morning of Father's Day, walked into the bedroom and picked up that little baby, only to find out the baby was dead. She obviously was devastated. She called the police and so on. The coroner came and so on. They certified that the baby had died of uh, SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. And that was the end of that, apart from two days later, Ron could no longer take it anymore. He called the police, and he confessed that he had killed the baby. He said while his uh, wife had gone to work, he took saran wrap, wrapped it around the face of that baby, went, uh, put the baby in the crib, went to brush his teeth, get ready to go to bed. When he got back, he said the baby had turned purple. He removed the saran wrap, put the baby in the bed, and went to sleep. He begged the police to shoot him. But this is what he said, if I can read it here, if I remember. He said, uh, Shana Barger, that was his last name, who worked at a tired retreading center, told police he confessed because the image of his son's face, flat and purplish with rigor mortis, haunted him. Let me go back. That's not what I wanted to say. He said, Shana Barger said he planned to make Amy feel the way he did when his father died. He married her, got her pregnant, allowed time for her to bond with the child, and then took the boy's life. In other words, he planned for well over a year. I'm going to marry this girl. I'm going to get her pregnant. 
we're going to have a baby. I'm going to wait till that baby bonds nine months, and then I'm going to take the life of this child to make her feel the way I did when she refused to come and meet my emotional needs. That is the power of unforgiveness and what it can do. It is a root that grows and it festers and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you say, I'm not capable of doing that. Yes, you are. Unless you are prepared to forgive. Someone said unforgiveness is like drinking a glass of poison thinking it will kill the other person and all it does is kill you. Nancy and I watched a number of months ago the funeral of the late president, George Bush. One of the gentlemen that was speaking, I can't remember his name, he gave a great uh, little statement. He said, unforgiveness corrodes the vessel that it's, it's carried in. Unforgiveness corrodes the vessel that carries it. That's what unforgiveness does. It destroys you. Years ago, Nancy and I were over in a place called Horsham, England, speaking at a conference there with Colin Urquhart. I don't know if he's dead or alive now, but uh, quite a large church, 1,000 people. They had a Bible school and so on. I mentioned forgiveness in one of my meetings at the end of the next uh, morning. One of the pastors came up to me, introduced me to a middle-aged lady, and uh, who wanted to meet me. I shook her hand. She shook my hand, thanked me for the message, and afterwards he said, I'll, I'll tell you the details later. He explained to me that this lady had enrolled in their Bible school, and for whatever reason, uh, uh, she had sort of slipped through all the cracks. He said, this is not the typical type of student. This lady's got a number of problems. She's had emotional problems. Uh, she's had her children taken away because of some of her physical problems, and so on and so forth. And uh, he sort of ran down the list, but he said, um, she came to me after you spoke, and she said, you know, I've got incredible bitterness and hatred towards, I believe it was her mother. She was crippled with arthritis. They prayed together. An hour later, she called him, and she said, my arthritis is totally gone. Again, unforgiveness corrodes the vessel that carries it. We are a tripart being, body, soul, and spirit, and one is affected by the other. And one of the great destroying things, again, is unforgiveness. The only reason that Jesus gave for divorce, I shouldn't say the only one, but when he summarized everything, he says, Moses gave you permission to divorce your wife for one reason, hardness of heart. In other words, unforgiveness. Because the opposite of a hardness of heart is tender-hearted being able to forgive. That is the number one destroyer of marriages. The refusal to say, honey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. To be tender-hearted. When we're hard-hearted, when we refuse and we stu we're stubborn, Jesus said, that's the only reason Moses gave you permission. Hardness of heart. And so unforgiveness is a major thing. I have a friend, a good friend, by the name of Winky Prattney. How many know Winky? Anybody here? Okay, a few of you. I was best man in Winky's wedding. We've known each other for 54 or 5 years now, something like that. Nancy was a bridesmaid, the Teen Challenge in New York. Winky was uh, speaking. This would be about 40 years ago now. He was speaking at, at Evangel College in Springfield, Missouri. That's the Assembly of God College. He was filling in, I believe, for David Wilkerson, who was not able to take a series of meetings. And Winky tells a story how on the last night of his meeting, two students came up to him, two girls. One of the girls said, I have a problem. I've been at this school now. I can't remember. It was months anyway, six or nine months. And she said, every single night, I wake up at exactly 2 o'clock in, uh, in, in the morning, and I am tormented. She said, uh, this fear comes into the room. I have to wake up my uh, roommate. This is my roommate. I introduced the other girl and said, we have to pray together every single night until this thing sort of lifts, and then I'm able to go back to sleep. But she said, it's happened every single night since I started attending the school. She went on to tell a little bit about her life. She said, I was adopted as a child. 
I've never met my birth mother, and I've held resentment towards her, basically, is what came out over the course of uh, the next uh, while that they talked. And she said, the mother that adopted me, I didn't feel treated me the way she treated her own children. And so she said, I've grown up again with this sort of, uh, not hatred, but she said, I, I just don't appreciate you know, the, the woman that adopted me. And as she began to share her story, I don't have all the details, but Winky stopped and he said, uh, he said God, <clears throat> excuse me, God just spoke to me and he said, two o'clock in the morning represents your two mothers. And unless you are prepared to forgive them, first of all, your birth mother, because she said, how could anybody give up a child? I didn't do anything. I was innocent. I was a helpless little child. And my mother rejected me. And then the woman that had adopted her, that she'd grown up knowing as her mother, again, she didn't feel treated her fairly. And as Winky challenged her, he said, listen, I've got to run. I think he was catching a, a plane but he said, you need to forgive. He said, forgiveness is not an emotional thing. It's uh, volitional. You have to will. You have to choose to forgive. She said, I could never forgive my mother. He left that night. I was standing with him about three weeks later in Burbank, California, outside the Youth of the Mission headquarters. And he was going through his mail. If you know Winky, he's a multitasker. He can carry on a conversation, read a letter, and, uh, you know, do half a dozen things at once. And uh, he opened this letter, and he began reading it. He said, Dear Winky, you may or may not remember me, but I'm the girl with the two mothers. And then he explained to me the story. He went on to read that letter. She said, The hardest thing I ever had to do was to forgive my two mothers. But she said, By the grace of God that night... I forgave them. She said, I had no, I've never had any contact with my birth mother. But I contacted the, my mother, and she remembered the name of my birth mother. And she said, I was able to make contact with her only to find out she has been searching for me for many, many years, and she is a born-again believer and I'm going to be meeting her for the very first time. I don't have all the story exactly right, but that was the gist of it. You see, when you release, you release God to work on your behalf. And the moment she released that situation, she released the hands of God, and God was able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Corrie Ten Boone, many of you have heard her name, tells the story of how she was incarcerated during the war years after her family was discovered to be uh, looking after the Jews, hiding them, the hiding place. I'm sure you've read that book. Years later, she was back in that area ministering. They'd put up the various ads, I guess, around town. At the end of a meeting, the commandant of that uh, concentration camp came up, and he introduced himself. The moment he introduced himself, she realized this is the man that was responsible for my father's death and my sister's death. They would be paraded naked in the freezing cold outside. They would have to clutch one another at night to stay warm, and so on and so forth. And this man alone was responsible for her father's death and her sister's death. He came up and he said, I noticed, I recognize your name that you were going to be speaking, and I've come to ask you for forgiveness. And he put out his hand, and he said, in that moment, she said, everything sort of flashed across her mind. This is the man that destroyed my family. And she said, I reached out my hand, and she said, suddenly the love of God was shed abroad in, the, in my heart by the Holy Ghost, and I was able to forgive him. God is wanting to give you, again, the grace to forgive. And the moment you say, Lord, I'm going to go down that track, so to speak, you untie, you release the hands of God. Turn with me to Matthew 18 as we look at this portion of Scripture. I'm sure you've read it many, many times.
verse 21, And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. I think Peter was expecting an A-plus on that. Jesus patting him on the back and said, Man, Peter, you're up to seven times forgiveness. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And Jesus said, Peter, it's not seven, it's 70 times seven. Now, obviously, Jesus was not putting a numeric limit on our forgiveness. But when you forgive somebody that many times, you lose track. It becomes part of your natural makeup. Isn't that right? Part of your character. You're so used to forgiving that you lose track of how many times you've forgiven. And so Jesus goes on to tell the story. He said there was a certain uh, man that owed... Well, let me go back. Verse 22, I did not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, there was brought to him one that owed 10,000 talents. According to Haley's handbook, that's either 75 pounds is one talent, or 50 pounds, depending whether it's silver or gold. But anyway, it translates around $2 billion today. That's quite a debt, you know. $2 billion debt. Not too many people have the capability of paying that off, and certainly Jesus is trying to get across the point there is no way that you can earn God's forgiveness. But it says, But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, all that he had and repayment to be made. And the slave, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. I can imagine this man knew that that day was going to come. I imagine he had many sleepless nights, if not months, if not years, wondering when the master was going to awaken to the fact that he had in, uh, indebted himself $2 billion and thinking, listen, I don't have any assets. The only assets I have are my wife and my two teenage boys who are worth something. And that day came, and he begs his master, begs his master, falls down, begins to weep and cry out, and his master is moved with compassion and forgives him. And then it says, but that slave went out and found a fellow slave that owed him a hundred denarii. Denarii is one day's wages, so a hundred, basically three months' wages. And he begins to strangle his fellow slave, choked him, and said, pay back what is owed you. And his master, and sorry, his fellow slave fell down, began to entreat him, saying, have patience with me, and I'll repay you. In other words, this man responds the way he responded. He begs, please be merciful, please. And he refuses. He was unwilling, however. He went and he threw him in prison until he should repay him what he owed. But his fellow slave, when they saw what had happened, his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. His master called him and said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not have mercy also on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? Now, if we ended the story there, I could agree that parables are stories you don't take and you make, you know, major sort of doctrine out of. There's a general sort of a theme, and the general theme there is be compassionate, be merciful, right? And we could have ended it there and said that was what Jesus was trying to get across. But notice what Jesus said there in verse 35, so shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you. Now this is a theological nightmare because you thought your sins were under the blood. You thought your sins were in the sea of God's forgetfulness. I will remember your iniquities no more. And yet God reaches in that sea of unforgetfulness and he reinstates in his ledger all of your sin. Now, you can argue with the word. 
He reinstated a debt that he already forgave. He forgave him all of his debt. And yet Jesus said, listen, my Father does exactly the same thing. If you don't forgive, everything that has been forgiven is going to be reinstated against you. Now, I'll let you argue with the Word of God. Barry can straighten me out later. You see, it's pretty serious. It's not something that we can take lightly. It's not something we can sort of sweep under the rug and say, well, I don't feel like it right now. Again, my friend, he said, beware lest you wake up in eternity and find him saying to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus said, when you are presenting your gift at the altar, keep in mind now this is the old covenant, the cross has not taken place, but when you're presenting your gift, your gift is a sin offering. You're there to ask for forgiveness. And when you're presenting your gift, you remember that you are at odds with a brother or sister. Things are not right between you. Jesus said, before you present your offering, go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come. In other words, I cannot forgive you until you put things right with somebody else. My hands are restrained. Go put that thing right, and then come to me, and I'll forgive you. That's what Jesus taught. Again, you can read it for yourself, Matthew 5, 23. Now, I want you to see something, and this came to me in my devotions one day about a couple of years ago now. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. In other words, Jesus Christ is the ultimate offering. Isn't that right? He is our sin offering. And Jesus Christ is offering himself for your sin and my sin. But prior to offering himself, he goes through the most horrendous time in his life. He is despised and rejected of men. If you read what happened to him, he was abused, he was mocked, he was ridiculed. They pulled out his beard. They put a, a crown of thorns upon his head, not a delicate, you know, little photo op thing, but they smashed that thing down. His face was a bloody mess. He was naked by all accounts, and they nailed him to the cross. Prior to that, they said, listen, you know, prophesy to us. They blindfolded him. They made fun of him. If you know so much, tell us who struck you. Tell us who did this. I mean, he went through unbelievable suffering. His back was lacerated. You know, the Bible says that uh, the devil withdrew from Jesus for a more opportune time. In other words, there were times when they wanted to make him king and he was able to get out of that but I believe this was a time when all the powers of hell came against the Son of God. And here he was, nailed to a cross, offering himself as a sacrifice to God. And yet at the same time, his brothers have something against him. They're crying out, we will not have this man reign over us. He came unto his own, his own received him not. And as he is making his offering, he is the offering. He isn't there bringing his offering because the Bible says, first of all, be reconciled to your brother. He is the offering. And as he's on that cross, again, he's got a crowd hurling abuse against him, rejecting him, despising him. He was the man, Christ Jesus. You don't think he was tempted? The Bible says he was tempted in all points. Can you imagine the temptation of that moment not to forgive when he is the pure, innocent Son of God? 
And yet Jesus makes this statement, Father, forgive them. And as I read that in my devotions a couple of years ago, I felt the Holy Spirit said this, if Jesus Christ had not forgiven that crowd, the atonement would never have amounted to anything. God himself would have been restrained from accepting that sacrifice. First of all, be reconciled to your brother. Jesus had to be reconciled. If those words had never come out of his mouth, the atonement would have never been an acceptable sacrifice to God. That's how serious it is when it comes to our forgiving somebody. There's people here this morning, I have no doubt whatsoever that even as I'm speaking, you're thinking of a situation Maybe it was when you were a child, you were abused physically, emotionally, sexually. Maybe there's a business dealing, maybe there's some other situation. Maybe you were, again, the child that was always compared to the smarter older brother or sister or whatever. And over the years, there's been a resentment. Over the years, you've allowed that thing, again, every time that person's name or situation comes up you know that things are not right. I want you to go out of here this morning knowing that that thing has been dealt with, that you are prepared to release that person. Oh, I know the enemy is a master at saying, but it wasn't your fault, it wasn't your fault. You still have to forgive. Let's stand to our feet as we close. If that's you this morning, these altars are open. I'm not a beggar when it comes to altar calls. But listen, if you need to get right with God, all you've got to do is come and say, Lord, I release that person. Imagine you're holding in your hand that situation and you let go of it. Release and you will be released. Let that thing go. And God himself will begin to work on your behalf. Don't hold on to it. Don't let another day go by. Don't say, well, I'll get around to doing it one of these days. Listen, it may be your healing is tied up in this. I believe that when we release, again, there is healing that God is able to give to us. Again, we're tying the hands of God. God says, I can't do a thing for you. I can't do a single thing for you. You've restrained me until you are willing to forgive. I cannot work on your behalf. That's why it's the greatest obstacle to personal revival. Whatever it is this morning, don't put it off. Come and let God cleanse you of that thing.